Women Making Waves. We went to see our family and there were six of us there and we had, there was so much noise because everybody needs to get out their own story. Mm. And sometimes you can't do that on Zoom, can you? Well, no, because you can really only hear one person at a time or it just becomes a big, a big messy muddle. Yeah, exactly. So we got on and we caught up with all the things that we need to to tell people what we had done and we listened to what everybody else had done. And the one interesting part to it, well, it was all interesting, but this is something I'd never heard one of our daughters talk about, was investing their money. She saved up a little bit of money from not going out through lockdown. And so I really take my hat off to her. She's saved and still continues to save, even though we've gone past lockdown. Now restrictions have finished and we're able to go out. She's still got the money. And she was talking to my husband and her brother about her group of friends don't talk about money and what they can do mm. with their little investment or anything they want to do invest. And she said, it's probably because I'm not interested, but I'm now interested because... I do have some money. I have saved. So it was it was something that really caught my attention in the sense that I don't think women talk about investment as much as we probably yeah, ought to. Yeah, it's true, actually. It's not a topic of conversation I would ever think to have with my mm. female friends, actually. You're right. It's a male thing. And, and it's not no disrespect to the men and, and them doing that. But I think we haven't given ourselves an opportunity to talk about it, let alone have money to to invest. But if we if we talk about it more, then we would probably think more about saving a bit more money to do that and not maybe going on holidays too much or maybe investing so that we could go on a bigger holiday maybe in a few years' time. I don't know. I don't know how this works. But it was an interesting aspect that I'd never thought about with my own two daughters and maybe with your daughter that might happen too in a time when she thought she once she it. she stops being a perpetual um, student yes <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> not much investing there except well, yes yeah. that's right yeah yeah so that was good so and of course that really goes on to our guest our first guest doesn't it sarah turner founded angel academy way back in 2014 and Really looking forward to hearing what she has to say about women investing. It's uh, it is something I'm very interested. In. I'm very scared to invest my money because I'm I'm always worried about losing the hard earned, yeah. you know, and hard saved money that I have. Exactly. So you know, people do say if you've got anything spare that you can lose, then investing is really really good. And I I you know. At being a bit tight, I don't really feel I can lose any of it. You know, that is my worry. But great to hear what Sarah has to say about that. And then, of course, we're moving on to animals. Everybody likes animals, don't they? You've got your dog. I used to have my cats. Yeah, we, well, we all love animals. I think we are a nation of animal mm -hmm. lovers. I think most countries are. But as you say, our second guest this week is Rebecca Willers. <laughs> And boy, she is director of Shepworth Wildlife Park as well. And what a what an interesting lady. Yeah, indeed. It's no secret. She was brought up amongst animals. You know, she's brought up in a conservation park, really, by her, her mum and dad, who, who kind of accidentally, as you'll hear her say, started looking after lots and lots of animals. I, I, I still think what an amazing <laughs> way to be brought up. You know, we always had dogs in the house. But it's, it's not quite the same as having all kinds of wildlife that you're looking after and people are bringing along various animals as well. Amazing. Incredible. 
Would you, would you have liked to have done something like that, actually, Susan? Ah, it's a good question, Linda. And if if maybe if I had been asked to do it at a certain age, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't have said no. So who mm. knows? When I was younger, definitely. Yeah. I think I'd have been very, very keen. Yeah. Now I would just think, oh, all that mucking out. <laughs> yes, you know? yes, that's right. I know, <laughs> I know. All the vet spills. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. There's a lot to be to be said about running that place and we'll hear all about that from Rebecca it's an absolute eye-opener and what she's been through as well is quite interesting isn't it it is very interesting story you're listening to women making waves radio show and podcast brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness this show is all about women doing extraordinary things If you love animals, there can't be a better job in the world than working with them and protecting them. We're joined today by Rebecca Willers, who's been director of Shepworth Wildlife Park for over 21 years and manages the park with her father and brother. Rebecca has always been surrounded by animals as she was brought up in her family's wild animal sanctuary. And we're looking forward to finding out more. Thank you very much for joining us today, Rebecca. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Willer's Wild Animal Sanctuary it started in 1979, I believe, as a private sanctuary. And it was a refuge for lots of different types of creatures. Was that started by your parents? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's my mum and dad. So originally, actually, my father bought the property because he was a builder. So he wanted to build houses and make some money and move on because that's what he did. And actually what's lovely is if you go into the Grafton Centre, the outside car park, there's some back streets there. And if you have a look, there's a whole row of cottages and it says Willis Cottages on there that my father built. So it's oh, lovely. Wow. So actually the, the intention wasn't to buy some land in 1979 and build a zoo, not at all far from it. But what happened was, is while they were there, they were both animal lovers. So they started off rescuing some animals they got known in the area for their animal love so then people started bringing animals to them and in those days it was a lot of RTAs so road traffic accidents maybe unwanted pets if people couldn't look after their animals anymore and then obviously as the years went on then it became like you know the zoos that closed down rescuing those ex-laboratory animals and those kind of things so it kind of went off on a tangent but in those early days it was very much kind of like your fox cubs that had been abandoned or the badger that had been hit by the car that kind of thing lots of hedgehogs so yes, that's why it was known as Willis Mill Wild Animal Sanctuary back in those days, because it really was a sanctuary. And they both had a passion for horses as well. So I remember as a child, we always had lots of paddocks with horses in, which now, now I look and I look at and I'm like, oh, there's a tiger enclosure there now. <laughs> <laughs> all, all very, very different. That's what I remember as a child. And how involved were you as a child in looking after these animals? Oh my goodness. Me and, um, my, well, I have actually several brothers and sisters. So as a child, it was my brother, Jake and Nick and uh, my sister, Alex, we were all all very much involved in it. So I have very young memories of milking cows and goats and putting <laughs> the chickens away. And because those are the kind of the animals that we had in those days. And I have vivid, vivid memories of coming downstairs and there'd be an emu in the kitchen or the <laughs> you in the corner of the house or a little squirrel monkey, like, you know, tucked away somewhere. You know, I am talking, by the way, so this is back in the day, you know, back in the early 80s. You know, you wouldn't do these kind of things nowadays. But you 
you know, anything that was poorly or injured or uh, needed a bit more tender, loving care. My mum was the ultimate nurse because uh, actually originally she was she was a nurse when my father first met her. So everything was having that, you know, that extra special bit of love from her to make sure that it was patched up and ready to go back out in the wild if it could. Because ultimately as well, that's what they wanted to do. It wasn't about animals in captivity. It was about getting these animals to the peak of their health and then getting them back out in the wild if they could be. Obviously not the emu and the, the king could do and that kind of thing. But yeah, no, I remember it was a proper little do little house with all sorts of animals coming and going all the time. Yeah. It sounds like you had a sort of an idyllic childhood growing up with animals in the kitchen, animals outside. Was it idyllic? Did you find that all your brothers and your sisters, is there four of you, by the way? Four of you, four siblings? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've got some other siblings now, actually. But um, now running the zoo, it's myself and my brother, Nick. Right. With our, so, with our father still, you know, he's in his 70s, but he's out there building in his 70s. He's a workaholic. So just going back then to to the environment that you're brought up in. So it wasn't a sort of a, a gendered environment. You were all doing the same thing, weren't you? You were all looking after the animals or helping your mum and dad. I mean, that's quite an interesting way of growing up, isn't it? It sounds quite a... I don't it's know. very different. Obviously, we went to school. Yeah, <laughs> um, good. <laughs> um, but the difference is, is that we would come home from school and you wouldn't go in and go and watch TV or, or do homework or something. There would be some chores that you would have to do and it would involve the animals, of course, naturally. And then at weekends, it, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't do it nowadays, but weekends we were working and I remember that from a very very young age and I, I'm pretty sure my mum will back me up here I was running the cafeteria at like 12 years old which again I don't know if that was illegal back then but certainly that's what happened you know possibly was and you wouldn't you wouldn't do it nowadays you know do you know what I mean but back in those days that's what it was because you know it was all hands on deck we didn't do day trips as families. We went on the odd holiday, but, you know, you made a commitment. It was our lifestyle. It was the way of life. That, and of course, we knew no different as well. So for us, it was the norm. So were you intent on working with animals when you left the school? Because I know that you were a journalist for a little while. What was your plan yeah. when, you, when you left the school? Well, what's really funny is I've always worked at the zoo. Actually, I never took a break from the zoo because even when I went into, you're right, into publishing and journalism, I was still actually volunteering every weekend at the zoo because, actually, I never really left, because I was renting the flat at the zoo. So in order to pay my rent, I was working at the weekends. And because I just had such a passion, I didn't want to to leave it but it was just one of those things you know I, I did my A-levels I wanted to be a barrister because I wanted to go that one step further and be like a basically like almost like the RSPCA if you like to actually get in there and be able to actually make a, a tangible change to what was going on because I was so passionate about animal welfare and um, conservation etc um, and still obviously am today but but certainly I remember being very strong about that when I was like 17 18 wanting to stop any kind of cruelty to animals and stop poaching and, and that was how I saw my way to do it but I took a gap year ended up with absolutely zero money and ended up working for this publishing house and that's how I kind of by default ended up in, in journalism but my passion was always the zoo so I would rent the flat at the zoo so I could still be around those animals 24 7 and work there at weekends and then what happened was the manager of the zoo at the time handed her notice in and I think I was 2021 and my older brother Jake was running it with my father and they approached me and they said, do you want to take the job? <laughs> <laughs> 
and you couldn't resist <laughs> no no but I was like I was so scared and by this point I deferred university so many years that they were like yeah you, you don't want to be a lawyer do you keep deferring and um, I'd started a psychology degree actually by this point with the open university so I was like well I can do my degree and and yeah but then I was like but I, I don't have any formal quality my A-levels you know were, were all geared towards being um, a barrister so I was like I don't have any like animal qualifications do I so I know what I'm doing because I've done it every weekend, but I took the plunge and I did it. So, and I've been oh. running a since I was 20 years old. So, yeah. But then I went on and did a zoology degree and, and some other bits and bobs to, to make sure I had the qualifications because I was so young and some of the keepers were older than me. It was a bit like, do they have more experience than me? I'm quite nervous about that. And I was kind of one of those managers that I just thought I need to show that I know what I'm talking about. So that's why I went down that route, road as well. I'm just so, so grateful that I made that decision at 2021 because I've never looked back. And then I carried on doing the freelance journalism because actually I really enjoyed the writing side of it. But I'm just so grateful that I made that decision to myself and so grateful to have had that opportunity because I, I cannot tell you the the love that we all have for that place it's just such a special place to be even just for your own well-being you know to be around the beauty of the animals but the trees and the lakes that dad's put in and things it's just such a people say that about the place that it's got this really kind of nice tranquil kind of family vibe to it and that's what we're trying to create it's it's a very healthy space to be in yeah it sounds as I said before an idyllic way of, of growing up and you said that 21 and 22 you made your decision to move into this career and even at 21 and 22 most people really don't know what they want to do did you feel confident all the way through your childhood I was really addicted to studying bizarrely as a child and um, so I think my main concern was that because i I'd deferred university twice that I kind of let myself down. So I think as soon as I started doing, first of all, the psychology degree, and then I went on and did the zoology degree, as soon as I had those, my confidence, I think, came there. And then I went on and did the MBA as well, which really, really helped the business, if I can call it a business, although I don't like to, to take that new conservation route that we needed to go down. I also did this like veterinary assistant course and things like that. And I do feel confidence with, I know not everyone does and people either learn on the job or they learn, but I felt more confident having those as a background to where I was coming from with my changes that I wanted to make to improve the welfare. But actually I have to say the biggest change for Shepworth was probably when we joined the associations 15 years ago, whatever we joined the national association Bayaza after that, we joined EASA, the European Association. And as soon as you do that, and, you, and I'm quite an extrovert, I love mixing with people. So as soon as you start networking and meeting people at the conferences, listening to the talks and, the, and getting to know people's stories, and you suddenly have this whole wealth of knowledge that you kind of like as a little small, like, well, there's no wild animal sanctuary, we're doing it on our own. You suddenly go, wow, there's a whole world out there of professionals that are all just as passionate. And that is what it's about. You are never gonna make it as a little tiny sanctuary on our own. We're never gonna make the big steps and the changes and the behavior changes that we want to make. We are going to do that by networking and joining these breeding programs and joining these conservation initiatives and really getting out there and finding out what all the projects are that we can be involved with and what we should be doing to make those changes. Because I'm very, very passionate about the fact that we are not and we will never be just an attraction just to come and look at our animals. That's not what we're about because that's the old days of zoos. 
Yeah. We're about you come to us, you get inspired, your child is inspired, and they go on and they want to do something. Or we're going to inspire you to give us some money that we can then put into these projects back in situ. So these animals are acting as ambassadors. They're not just there for you to look at. And then the other side of that then is the fact that we then 10 years ago founded SWCC, the Shepworth Wildlife Conservation Charity, it came to a point where on one of our zoo licenses, they were like, you cannot be doing this anymore. You've got rescued animals. So you've got badgers coming in with possibly, you know, whatever untold viruses, etc. You've got foxes, cubs coming in. You've got hedgehogs coming in with ringworm, etc, etc. And then you've got your captive healthy population. That doesn't work. And there's something called the Ballarat approval that we had to get and we couldn't get it with basically what it would have meant is all those poorly animals coming in from the wild, they would have to be quarantined for 30 days uh, and it just wasn't working. Anyway, so basically Sally and I are chatting about this dad's in the office as well and I'm like, we need to build something you know, off the site basically so we can still do this. And also by this point, we'd started raising a bit of money here and there for a tiger project and that kind of thing. And we were like, we could do so much more if we were a charity, we could gift aid it and things like that. So that's where it came from basically, it's just a chat in the office going, right, we're gonna do this. And I'm so proud to tell you now, it's our 10th anniversary this year. We are so oh, super brilliant. excited and we've raised half a million in that time. So that's half a million that we wouldn't have had without that kind of like initial start. But most importantly, we got a hedgehog hospital out of it. 5,000 hedgehogs. <laughs> wow. And this is the argument. I know you'll have listeners here that are anti-zoo. I know this, and you know, all members of Born Free or whatever. But what I would say is there would be no hedgehog hospital. 5,000 hedgehogs would not have been coming through our doors. Half a million pounds would not have been raised if we didn't have Shepworth Wildlife Park. And there is no difference between the word of a wildlife park, a zoo, a zoological park. Essentially, it's all the same thing. You know, you're keeping animals in captivity. But, you know, we've educated over a million children in, in the years that we've been open, informal education sessions, you know, that come from the school, et cetera. And these things are only possible by being there and being present. You attract the people in with the animals, but when you've got them there, that is when you do the work the important work, the good work. And don't get me wrong, there are a thousand and one bad zoos out there. We all know that. In 2015, you went to Indonesia to the Tiger Conservation and Protection Unit and you were bitten by something with quite serious effects. Tell us, tell us what happened. That sounded awful. No, so that unfortunately is journalism error there. So I wasn't bitten. So basically the condition I have, it's a autoimmune basically that I have now which obviously have a life but it was obviously there it was going to come out at some point what they think happened is that it was triggered while I was there so basically I got obsessed with extreme challenges and I would get zoo directors um so again this is all part of the networking thing I think I was probably at a conference one night probably in a bar and went why don't we swim the ocean or something <laughs> like that so I got a team together and we, we swam the channel. And then I think it was like, you know, the following conference, well, we've, we've done swimming now, so why don't we do something else? So let's climb a mountain, so then we climb Killy. So these people were all zoo directors, and the idea was to get directors together from other zoos, because there was another kind of PR side to it as well, is that the challenge was great. And yes, we were raising money, which was fabulous, because we were all raising money for our own projects. But then make it like an international or a national PR kind of like, all these zoo directors are doing this for saving this project and that project is suddenly limelighted and that was the the point of that and especially when this is what you're um, talking about now is the smart trek we had i think 10 of us went over there 10 directors from zoos from all over 
And what was great is that we highlighted the Tiger Protection Conservation Unit project. Uh, not so much, maybe we got a bit of publicity in the UK, but in Indonesia, it went all over the press, which was just fabulous. It really kind of got some exposure out. So we were out there. Uh, we were broken up into smaller units because obviously we were too big as nine directors because of all the anti-poaching people we had with us. So I was broken down into a unit with two of my very close uh, friends, other zoo directors, and then we had these three anti-poachers with us. And my two zoo friends got super ill. When I say ill, these ladies were just so poorly for one or two days that you're just like, how they actually got out of their sleeping bag to keep trekking that day was just a miracle because it was a really hard slog. And then the anti our anti-poaching team also got sick. And I'm like, oh, I'm next. And I just never got ill. Felt fine the entire time. Basically, as soon as I got back to the UK, my symptoms started within a few weeks. And then it took, obviously, you know, the six, nine months to get the diagnosis because it's such a rare condition. Um, and when I was talking to my GP, my consultant, et cetera, they were like, it could be that my immune system went into such an overdrive to protect myself from those viruses or whatever it is those, those poor friends of mine had. It just triggered it. And yeah, and I got super ill. So if you Google it, it's, you know, it's one of these things you should never go- I was told by my consultant, you should never have Googled it because um, it says, you know, you've got two to five years, basically. Uh, and I had um, a month or so where I hadn't, they needed to do all the tests. So you're waiting for the results. And it's where you're like, Mm, could be dead in five years yeah it was a weird experience and I'm kind of glad that I went through it in a way because it kind of makes you realize what it is that your experience would would go through in your head when you really genuinely think you're in that place and for me it was like god my mum's going to be devastated oh what am I going to I need to make sure she's going to you know it's those kind of things you start thinking about everyone else because you're going to be gone so you don't really I mean this is just my take on it and I've mm-hmm. talked about it and um, like that because obviously people do go through these things actually and and then yeah so anyway for me I'm just a very 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 lucky human being in the fact that they diagnosed me so early so I had no damage to my organs because it's you know your lungs and heart that you have to worry about and they put me on the treatment and I didn't have an adverse effect to the treatment the immunosuppressants and here I am uh, literally five years later still kind of going with the treatment and it's all working I mean don't get me wrong this time of year is horrendous for me because I have uh, Raynaud's now as a secondary syndrome as well so like can't feel my hands and toes for most of most of the winter. And I think they joke, don't they? They say you should go to a hot country this time of year. <laughs> but it, yeah, the cold triggers my disease, which is a bit of a, yeah, and it can make you really sluggish and um, quite lethargic and tired. I guess it's similar to the COVID symptoms. Yeah. So the whole COVID time must have been, I'm assuming for, for you, you'd have had to have isolated, but also <laughs> for the wildlife park as well, because you couldn't have visitors in. That must have been a horrible time. Yeah, it was hell as it was for everyone so I couldn't isolate I was supposed to I got all the letters but I, I I wasn't stupid I rang my consultant and I said I've got business I can't isolate I have to go into work every day and so they just say what they have to say don't they well can you avoid this and that and anyways yeah our staff were incredible the team were just amazing all throughout and the public support we got was out of this world it was so humbling there was one moment when I burst into tears and that's when um, it wasn't far into after the 20th of March that first time probably a week or two weeks in I opened a letter and it was from this amazing couple in Norfolk that had visitors love our capybara etc and there was a check in there it was 10 grand oh wow wow I raised the team and I was like you will you will never believe this I mean honestly I just even to this day I'm like I can't believe they did that but then the support that came in was just overwhelming so we had to diversify quickly so we started doing all these virtual experiences we started really pushing the shop if you want to help us because also we're not beggars we don't want to be asking for money but we're quite happy to sell stuff though you know so we were like 
by an adoption, by an experience, by this, by this, by, you know, because then you don't feel bad, do you? Because yeah, money's yeah. coming in, but you're getting something back, so it's fine. But the, the donations did come in. It was incredible. And in that first year, we had over £100,000 worth of public support. And it's not just about the fi- financial side of it, actually, as well. It's also about the fact that there is love out there for wildlife, for animals, for our conservation work, for our hedgehog hospital, for us, for, for Shepworth Wildlife Park that you are showing us your support and the fact that you don't want us to go downhill, that you want us to be here. And that is what is overwhelming. And that is what kept the morale up in our team. Because every time we got a donation, every time we got an Amazon wish lift or whatever it was, we'd radio down and say, hey guys, guess guess what happened today? Because we knew it was keeping them going. Them as well, it was just such, um, it was so lonely, right? And don't forget, a lot of our keepers are extroverts, but also for them, it's like they've suddenly lost their flip, I say their purpose, their purpose is to be, to be there to give the highest welfare standards they can and the husbandry and all the richment and the stuff of the animals they love. But the other purpose is that we're there for a reason. We're there to educate people about what's going on. Suddenly you've lost that because it's going back to this idea of behaviour change. I mean, I can give you some stories like um, I'll never forget many, many, many years ago when we first started doing our Tiger Day events. I'll never forget this little girl, Libby. She must have been like six or seven at the time. And she came and listened to the Tiger Talk. And I was like, oh, we've actually got Tiger Day tomorrow. So I'm really sorry you're here like a day too early. And they couldn't come back for Tiger Day. But then she wrote afterwards and she was like, oh, like what you told me about the Tigers, I'm so sad. Because I think it was when I was doing my swims as well, because I used to do lots of sponsored swims. She was like, so I've swam. I don't know what she'd done in the time, but like for her age, it was incredible what she'd done. And she'd raised all this money. Anyway, Libby went on to raise money year after year after year her mum ended up being a trustee she's now like it's got to be like 18 19 or something now that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying Shepherd we're just a little little tiny place but we're trying to make that difference very interesting what you said then about educating people as well do you get children asking you is this viable what you know would it would it be an interesting thing for me to do you know is that something that people approach you with uh, as in how to get into our industry yeah, uh, oh, yeah. absolutely oh, sorry that always so we're always asked to attend career days um at universities and and oh, we, uh, what i haven't mentioned of course is that when i say our team mm. i'm not just talking about our paid keepers we also have something like 100 students that come to us every year so that they either come on we lots of different scenarios where it's either work experience or it's part of like a sandwich gap year so they'll take a whole year out to come to us in, in their university years or they might just need to come and do a couple of weeks block for their course they're doing so um we can only take over 18 unfortunately because of our our, uh, insurance issue Um, but those guys then are getting especially the guys that come for their sandwich year they're getting full training so they're being trained like they are a keeper so they're getting that kind of industrial kind of industry knowledge to kind of if nothing else actually it gives them that kind of is this the career i really want to be doing yes yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, which really helps, but also gets their foot in the door at somewhere else to say, "Oh, I've done a year's experience." So, so we have kind of that side at Shepworth as well. And again, you know, you only have to talk to a couple of our keepers, and they'll let you know that they are literally passing every bit of knowledge that they can because they see it's really cute. It's like they see these guys as like their their proteges, and they do feel proud, especially when they go on and that they find that they've then moved to Chester Zoo or they've moved to here or they yeah. moved to Penn. It's like, oh, we're like that little stepping stone for them up. And you often, when you're out and about, if you're feeding an animal and a child stops, you're like, oh, how do I get into this? What we always say is you do need the education background, mainly because as well, you're always going to be up against a lot of CVs. We put a job out 
uh, as you can imagine yeah. and a thousand and one people will apply to it because I can imagine because it's yeah because it's a lovely career to be in it's um working mm. with animals mm. and so you you kind of need both yeah you need that kind of hands-on volunteering yeah. wherever you can get it even if it's in a vet's you know um to get you going with domestic animals to move on then to the wild animals well all i can say is move over david attenborough here comes <laughs> rebecca willis because i just think you are brilliant i you know it's so nice it's so refreshing to see women and you do what you do and it's it's wonderful isn't it linda it is it really is i don't know how you got the energy and an autoimmune disease as well, actually, which, you know, I mean, you're, you're swimming the channel and running and looking oh, sure. after all of these animals. My goodness. <laughs> I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you, Rebecca. It's been absolutely brilliant. And thank you very much for taking some time out. And, you know, let's not stop you having the next run now. Do you think you're off to do that <laughs> <Yes>. this, evening. <laughs> this evening? Thank you very much, Rebecca. Oh, thank, thank you, you Rebecca. so much for having me on here. It's lovely. Thank you. That's all we have time for in this episode of Women Making Waves. We've had a great time talking about investments and animal conservation. We'd like to thank our guests, Sarah Turner and Rebecca Willers. You can also contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews. Thank you.